I'm not even sure if sponsoring your own podcast is a thing, but we're going to give it a go for the remainder of this series because She Can, She Did has just launched the UK's first ever benefits programme curated for and by self-employed women in the UK. And so I wanted to use this opportunity to tell you all a little bit about it. The new She Can, She Did Benefits programme provides all self-employed women, female founders and freelancers with access to the health and financial benefits that come hand in hand with a corporate career, like pensions, health insurance, gym memberships, eye care, etc, etc, plus a whole host of additional fashion, beauty, well-being, parenthood and lifestyle incentives too, with over 60 plus brands on board and counting, including the likes of Pure Gym, Hiscox, Penfold and Vision. Express on the more traditional benefits front, to the likes of Esper, Bloom and Wild, Higher Street, to Hello Fresh and Oh Mama on the ultimate rewards front. For just £5.99 per month, you will gain access to a whole host of exclusive benefits and rewards to support both your business and your life, which, let's face it, will become all the more important as we all try and navigate the uncertainty that the coming months present. Plus, all members benefit from weekly online events with industry experts at no extra cost too, along with many, many more perks of the programme. Visit shecanshedid.com for more details if you're interested, or of course, feel free to just click on the link in this episode's show notes. I feel like Cheryl when I say the next bit, but here goes. She can, she did. Your resilience rewarded. Hello everyone and welcome back to the She Can, She Did podcast, aka the podcast that shares the honest realities of what female business owners in the UK push through behind the scenes, warts and all of course, to not just launch but to run, grow and sustain their businesses to date. If we haven't met yet, I'm Fee and I'm the founder of She Can, She Did slash the one asking the questions throughout this chat. Now, I know you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I knew from the moment I saw Day's branding that there would be a seriously switched on, intelligent and savvy founder behind it. And 26-year-old Valentina Milanova definitely didn't disappoint. Having moved to the UK from Bulgaria to launch Day, the female health research and development company best known for its organic and CBD-infused tampons, Valentina has pushed through an immense number of challenges to bring her vision for Day to life. From her experiences in the early days of Day, when she convinced her friends to test her homemade tampons, and the lengthy steps she went on to take to ensure that Day's products exceed manufacturing standards thereafter, to the painful journey she endured to secure investment, quite literally at one point, I mean the woman was hit by a taxi en route to a meeting, to the challenges she's faced navigating British culture, not just on a professional level, but a personal one too. It's hard enough launching a business in your home country as it is, but add language and cultural barriers into the mix, and as I'm sure you'll soon hear, it becomes a whole lot tougher. Yes, the audio isn't perfect on this one, I'm so sorry for that, but I hope you find Valentina's story to be as inspiring, motivating and just bloody amazing as I did. As always, I hope you enjoy it. Valentina, let's go right back to the beginning. Are you 25, 26? Yeah, I just turned 26. 
Oh, which is incredible. Let's talk about where this idea for day came from and then we'll roll with it. Sounds good, of course. So I had the idea when I was doing an evening MBA course back in Bulgaria, where I'm from. In order to graduate the course, we had to come up with a business idea that would be socially impactful. So I decided that I was going to produce a business idea that would revitalize an area in Bulgaria called Northern Bulgaria, where you have the highest rates of sexual trafficking, really high levels of unemployment. And I thought, okay, if I can come up with a business idea that would somehow, you know, revitalize the local industry, then that would automatically be a socially impactful business. So I went to the National Library and I started reading up on what this region had historically been good at producing and innovating in. And it turns out it's industrial hemp. So Northern Bulgaria used to be the biggest grower and exporter of industrial hemp. There was a Bulgarian scientist who first synthesized cannabinoids. There was a industrial hemp research center in northern Bulgaria as well. So that led me to discover all of these old research papers about industrial hemp and its different properties. And I just kind of kept reading on and on about the plant. And two of its properties really stuck with me. And the first one being that the fibers are more absorbent than other organic fibers because they have a sponge-like structure. And the second one, that the extract from the flower of the plant can be analgesic when applied topically. So these two properties kind of stuck with me, stuck in my mind. And I had this idea for a more absorbent pain relieving tampon, which was the first product of day. I then set about trying to manufacture this product. I reached out to every tampon manufacturer that I could find and no one was interested in any form of experimentation. So I decided to take the experimentation in-house and I called a friend of mine who actually now works in the company. But at that time, he was graduating from mechanical school and he helped me think about how to prototype the first machine. So the first machine was a 3D printed mode of the shape of a tampon. And then I used this old fiber processing technique called needle punching, which is how I put the fibers together. And then with the help of a syringe, I applied the cannabinoid coating on the outer layer of the tampons, which were kept in the mode. And the mode was kept in the freezer so that the coating would stay on the outside and not permeate inside the tampon. And that's how I made the first tampons. And I used them on myself. After some improvements, I gave them to my friends. My friends really liked them. And when my friends started giving me really positive feedback about the tampon, I decided to pester the tampon manufacturers even more. So I sent them handwritten letters and samples of the product and all of that. And finally, there was a small manufacturer in Germany, which doesn't exist, unfortunately, anymore. He's a man and he had daughters who had painful periods and he gave them the tampons, which now that I reflect back on this, I'm like, who does that? Like stranger sends you novel tampons and then you just give them to your daughters. But they worked for his daughters and he gave me a call back and I was able to do the first industrial run of the tampons, which is what I needed to start clinical trials and start, you know, larger user research and start actually thinking of this as a product rather than a concept. And that's how it began. I mean, there's so much there that I want to unpick, but first and foremost, like that's so inspiring. Going back though, how many attempts did it take of reaching out to the tampon manufacturers, not hearing anything before you decided to change your course? Because I'm really interested in these steps because I think they're the kind of things where so many people would just think, right, why bother then? If I don't get a call back or they're not answering my emails that's it, you know? So how long did you try and keep going with that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I waited about a month 
until I decided, okay, no one's getting back to me. I'll just do this myself. But I think that's just like the general level of slight arrogance that I have about myself and that I think every entrepreneur has, which is like, I'll just do it myself then. I didn't wait that long. And I had a lot of faith in the idea. So I thought, okay, well, if you're not getting this now, you're probably not going to get it anytime. So I'll just have to test it another way. Mm. And I presume when you were getting like the 3D tampon made or printed, in terms of the testing that's needed for a product like that, that obviously you put in your body and you're selling that to the public, the amount of health and safety procedures, I'm sure that you have box ticking things that you need to make sure you've done. Has that come en route or did you know all of that back at day one? Yeah, I mean, you'd think that they're really high standards and really strict procedures for manufacturing tampons, but that's actually not the case. Tampons are not classified as medical devices, so you don't need to follow medical device protocols when manufacturing them. We're doing this differently a day. We manufacture to even higher standards than those expected of medical devices. But it was a really difficult journey to try and discover what standards we wanted to apply in the company and in our manufacturing because there wasn't a list of rules that exist that we could just follow. We had to borrow standards from the pharmaceutical industry, from the medical device industry, and just create something that worked for tampons, which is what we have right now. We operate to ISO 13485 standards, which is the international standard of medical device and pharmaceutical manufacturing. We produce everything in a clean room. We sterilize our tampons in their final packaging, which ensures there's no harmful bacteria, including the bacteria that causes toxic shock syndrome. And we batch test. Every batch that comes out of our production is tested for purity, cannabinoid content, and the lack of pesticides, herbicides, and other nasties. But it took about a year and a half to figure out, okay, this is how we want to manufacture. These are the standards that make sense. Amazing. Now, I just think it's really important because I think anything like that, when you talk about all of those things that you're doing, you know, it can be quite overwhelming when you have an idea, but you know that you need to do all of this testing. Again, to just shelve the idea and just think like, why bother? But I think it's really important that, you know, that's all kind of comes part of the parcel. It, it snowballs, doesn't it? You have the idea and you just kind of learn as you go. I'm really interested. Obviously, it's one thing testing on yourself, but then testing on your friends. What were the kind of objections? Did you have any objections in the early days? Or like, what were the kind of key, or guess, any recurring, what's the word I'm going for? Like, uh, what's the word I'm going for? You know, recurring? Like concerns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the way that I did it the first time is I had gone back to Bulgaria and I was going to go back to London and start a job there. So I invited my friends under the pretense that this was going to be like a leaving dinner. And then everyone got a gift bag, which was like the day tampon. Well, they weren't even called day at that time. But the tampons that I had handmade. And I think I did a good job of like telling the story of why that's important and how when they give me feedback about the product, we can potentially change the lives of many women and many people who menstruate and experience menstrual pain. So I think I kind of hoaxed people into thinking about the bigger vision and the long-term potential of the product that they saw in front of them, which at that time was really no match to the product that we have right now. Yeah, no, definitely. I can I literally just put myself in your shoes and just picturing what I'd say to a group of my best friends at a table, like trying to sell the story and stuff. I love it. Have you found there to be kind of any obstacles, like trying to win people over as the brand has grown? And I guess my question would be like, how have you approached those? You know, when you believe in something so much, you've clearly tested, researched, et cetera, et cetera, but not everyone's going to get it straight away. So how do you handle that? Yeah, two points. 
the first and kind of biggest obstacle that we've had to overcome launching in the UK is that the audience here is very skeptical. People are very cynical in the UK and they're particularly cynical about organic, natural methods of treatment. So that's one. And then the second thing is, you know, people should quiz the brands that they're purchasing from and, and they should ask the tough questions. So we just have an answer to all of the difficult questions, like how does CBD impact my fertility? Can I use your tampons when I'm breastfeeding? Will they have a negative impact on my vaginal microbiome? Will they impact my vaginal pH level? So we've done clinical validation to provide an answer to all of these different questions. We've done a number of studies on the safety and efficacy profile of tampons, which actually put us on par with anti-inflammatories and common anti-analgesics in terms of the extent of the pain relief, but we have a quicker onset. So if you have to wait 35 to 40 minutes for the traditional painkiller to work, with the CBD tampon, it takes about 15 to 20, depending on your metabolism. So that's how we've consistently built upon people's skepticism is through good research and, and products that are rooted in science. Mm, I love that. And I guess as a brand, it only means that those questions force you to grow as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love that. Let's talk marketing then. So how long was the period between the idea popping into your head and you having the tampons in front of you? Uh, well, which version of the tampons? The tampons that went to market. Oh, the tampons that went to market. Well, two years. Yeah, because I had the idea in spring 2017 and then we went to market with a very small beta program in August 2019 and then we went to market properly with you know everyone being invited to the subscription in February this year so two two and a half years of setting up production building the machines getting regulatory approvals completing clinical validation and also building the brand right scrap the marketing question then we'll come on to that later in that case how firstly did you fund all of that testing because I think that again before you even go to market that's so much that you've just listed there two and a half years before the products are, you know, ready for the public for money to come in. What kept you going and how did you fund it? Well, for the first year, I lived in a five-bedroom flat chair with one bathroom to save as much from my salary as possible. I, what, was your, what was your salary in terms of not money, but like, what were you doing? I was a venture associate in a London-based accelerator. Yeah, yeah. And I only ate the free office food that was provided. So my, my salary was basically a subsidy for the company early on. And then because I'm Bulgarian and I work in the UK, I can take credit cards in the UK and in Bulgaria because it turns out the two countries don't share a credit rating system, which I'm not sure whether that's still the case. Maybe I served as a president for why <laughs> that shouldn't be the case. <laughs> but because I'm Bulgarian, that meant that I could take out credit cards in Bulgaria and then I could take out credit cards in the UK. So until I fundraised, I used my salary and credit cards to fund all of the initial product development, all of the initial research. And I also got a lot of discounts for things because I did free work for people. I built websites for suppliers that, you know, would give me free product or found other clients for a clinical trial partner that allowed me to pay monthly through my credit cards rather than in bulk. Yeah, so I used some ingenuity in negotiating things down and then just got myself into a lot of debt and then fundraised in September 2018. Amazing. 
I literally love this. So on that fundraising note, talk me through the process of how you went about that, the experience. I've heard mixed reviews with fundraising and obviously it's always well and good looking back in hindsight when you've raised the money, but because so many of the founders listening to this at early stage or aspiring, I'm really interested to know again how you approached it and your experiences behind the scenes. Initially, I just pitched anyone that would listen, like I pitched accelerators, angel investors, angel groups, anyone. And that really helped me perfect the story of day and what we wanted to become. At the start, no one could understand what day was about because I kept talking about social issues and the environment and how I want to hire people from the care and criminal system into the company that would be our production operators. And I want to invest in material science innovation so that the packaging would be as sustainable as possible. And people used to say, like, is this an NGO? Why are you talking to venture capital? Like, what is this? So I, through this experience of just pitching anyone that would listen, I think I understood what VCs wanted from a business. And it helped me improve my business plan and the financial model and just my commercial thinking around the business. And then I just met anyone. (laughs) And I asked everyone that I met to give me more introductions. And I used the time before I went to... So I actually fundraised while I still had my full-time job. So I fundraised early in the morning, late in the evening. I was probably the biggest user of Santander bikes because I found they were like the quickest way to get around. (laughs) My office used to be, the place where I worked was in West London, which was difficult because all of the VCs are in Soho or East London. Yeah, and, and slowly, you know, we found Index and Kindred who led our seed round. And then from there, we met Costa in San Francisco who did our, it wasn't even a seed extension. They kind of merged into one round. Wow. I literally love that. And from start to finish, how long did that take? So I started fundraising. Well, you're kind of always fundraising when you're a founder, right? Like you never stop. But I first started having conversations with like accelerators and angels in February 2018. And then I closed around in September 2018. Okay. So quick math, six months. Yeah, something like that. But not full-time, right? Like having a full-time job as well. Thing is, though, is like I'm just trying to think. Like this is why we she can she did. It's just trying to like get all the honest stuff out of these stories. And I think, like, like you just said, I'm just putting myself in your shoes. Full time job, then jumping on a bike to cross London and then pitch. I'm guessing if that was me, I'd arrive like a sweaty mess, and then you have to kind of pull yourself together. And... All the time, all the time. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. I also just like lost a lot of weight, and like none of my clothes fit me anymore. <laughs> And there was one time when I had just signed the index term sheet and there was a fund that wanted to meet very urgently. So I I cycled to their offices in Soho and on my way there, I got hit by a car, but I had like no time (laughs) to be bothered by it. So the car, it was like a black taxi. It hit me. I fell on the ground. I destroyed my elbow and like had a big bruise on my cheekbone. And I was like, oh, I'm late. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know how you, you when your body's like so pumped with adrenaline and caffeine that it's almost like an anesthesia, <laughs> anesthesia. So I just like cycled to the VC's office and I showed up and I hadn't even realized that I looked like such a mess. So I sat down and I was wearing this white shirt. Oh, my jeans tore as well. So my jeans were like, they were like fashionably torn before I had the accident. And then after the accident, they were like inappropriately torn. Um, <laughs> and then... I had my white shirt that was like soaking with the blood from my ankle. I looked like the victim of domestic abuse with my little bruise on my cheekbone. 
and I sat down. I was like, okay, like telling the story of day and all of that, like spritzing blood all over. And then the guy's like, are you okay? Did something happen to you on the way here? I was like, yeah, this guy, the taxi, it's London, blah, 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 biking. Let's talk about racing. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to the point. Gosh. Wow. Fair play to you. I mean, that's probably one of my favorite stories so far. I love that. Yeah. But then a year later, I discovered that like my cortisol levels, cortisol is the hormone that you release when you're stressed. They were something like 11 times the norm. So I think the norm is between 7 and 11. And then I had 140 or something. And I'm saying that because it's well and good to do these things, but you can't do them forever because your body keeps the score. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's something to be so mindful of, isn't it? Because it's like the kind of stories where I'm, you know, in awe of the determination there, but there is that part where you couldn't glamorize that side of it, you know? But I do think it's important, though, or at least I think something that is recurring in pretty much all of these interviews is there is always a period of X amount of time where you just put the work in and it does consequences like that. It can happen. Not everyone's been hit by a taxi, but definitely the stress levels, it definitely takes its toll. Let's talk marketing then. So the funds come in literally day just stands out you must hear it all the time but like whoever your graphic designer is just is so amazing what was your approach to the brand story getting the brand out there especially as sustainability really has hit that industry now and there's off the top of my head a good three or four brands come to mind all kind of sustainable in that space so how do you make sure you stand out how aware are you of the competition do you see them as the competition go for it so I can start with how we developed the brand. So I fundraised and that gave me the capital to start working on the brand because before that, everything that I had was being invested into clinical research IP. So I started interviewing branding agencies and we actually tried to work with six different branding agencies before we gave up on the branding agency route. Why it didn't work out for us and why I don't recommend working with branding agencies if you do want to build a genuinely differentiated brand is that you can't outsource the hard, soul-searching work that is integral to building a brand that stands for something genuine. And branding agencies are great if you, you know, just want to build a quick product and a company that you're going to flip in a few years. But if you want to build something that is thoughtful and philosophical and lasts for generations and you have to turn inwards. There's a guy called Duke Stump, who used to be the CMO of Lime, Seven Generation, Lululemon, Nike. And he says product is a mirror to your soul. And I think brand is a mirror to your soul as well as a company. So we decided to build the brand in-house. And how we did it was we actually collaborated with an artist called Erin Romo out of New York. And we loved the art that she does with patterns and the colors that she chooses. So I found her on Instagram and I messaged her and I said, I'm sorry, this is a bit out of nowhere, but I love what you do. And I have a tampon company in London. So can I please fly to New York and meet you? And can you please build our brand? And, and she was very kind and generous and said, yes. And this is the person that we've worked with to, you know, build every single piece of visual around day, every packaging, website design, Instagram designs, everything. That's absolutely amazing. And when you were briefing her, I presume she asked for some kind of competitor landscape or? No, no, no. no? no it's literally all just. So I don't want to be callous about the way that we think about competitors, but we're never just like looking in the side view mirror and thinking like, oh my God, who's there? What are they doing? 
we're focused on the vision and mission for day and how to get to where we want to get, not really thinking about, okay, there's other tampon companies out there. There's other CBD companies out there. There's other female hot companies out there. I mean, we, we encourage innovation in our space. We think it's a great thing. Whenever we see someone in our space do something interesting, we always reach out and congratulate them. So the way that we built the brand was with, frankly, no regard for what anyone else is doing out there. We just thought about, okay, what do we want to do? For the packaging, for example, we draw inspiration from 70s pharmaceutical packagings. And then the core and central thesis of the brand is the scientist meets the dreamer. And, you know, it's about building products that are rooted in science, but inspired by intuition. And there's this whole duality of the day brand of, you know, this really strong scientific rigor, but also wanting to inspire this new vision for a new day in female health and just be very positive and uplifting with the brand identity. I literally love it. Comes through so, so well. So hats off to you for being the genius behind it and your designer. Gosh, she's done such a good job. Let's talk challenges, Valentina. It's my favorite bit in all the podcasts because I just think hearing other founders, it's what keeps me going. But also I think it's always so important to just cut through the, the noise and the glossiness of that kind of girl boss stereotype. So what has been the hardest part of this journey so far? People, I'd say, finding the right people, retaining the right people, treating people well when they haven't scaled with the company and things haven't developed in the way that you wanted them to. Yeah, I'd say that has been the hardest part. And also transitioning from being a single person company to having a team, that has been challenging for me, navigating you know, the dynamics and the politics of that. Mm-hmm. And also just existing in the UK is difficult for me. I've been spending a lot of time talking to my therapist about this because I've been here since 2013 and you start developing this immigrant identity, which becomes part of your core identity. And there's still so many things that I don't understand in like the culture and the words and the expressions. And I get lost in translation all the time like social situations and what people find offensive. And I come from a culture that's like super direct, super honest, to the point. And this in the UK is often seen as disrespectful. So what I found hard is to navigate just this constant anxiety that I now feel, like this low-level anxiety and self-monitoring of, you know, am I saying the right thing? Am I moving my hands too much in this meeting? Mm. Am I being too direct in my email? I can imagine that that is really, really tough. One of my good friends is Spanish from my old company before I launched She Can, She Did. And I remember when we met, just so super direct and just feeling like, oh, don't know about this. But then once I got to know that that's just how she is and like that's absolutely fine in, in Spain, like it just became so much easier. And then we obviously like working together just became an absolute breeze. But it was like that transition period. Yeah. And I, I have so much respect for you launching a business over here when that is a challenge because I think being a leader is hard enough as it is but having to navigate that as well hats off to you like let's talk about it in terms of you know when things haven't gone to plan and someone has taken what you deem to be just a normal comment as an I don't know it's insulting or taking offense or read it the wrong way how have you as the boss of the company navigated that and what's your advice for anyone listening you know when there are kind of miscommunications with teams because taking away the fact that English isn't your first language and being a boss generally does come there's sometimes miscommunications with teams in general so yeah what's your advice yeah 
I think the first thing about just navigating British culture in general is to be aware that there is this emotional penalization here when you don't fit in you're made to like understand that straight away and and you're made to feel like the odd one out straight away so i think for anyone that's building a business as a person who wasn't born here it's great to be aware of that because it is extremely psychologically taxing to think that you know you've always done something wrong and to always feel guilty now that I have this realization, I actually just empathize with British people a lot more because I just think, wow, what was this person's childhood? So that they're now at the stage where they feel like they have to penalize every single person that mispronounces a word or something. And then one practical thing that I've started doing to improve communication. So when something goes wrong, when someone feels like I've crossed the line or I've been too direct and their feelings are hurt, I've taken to baking. I think that's like a great way to... I mean, the British love a good cake. Yeah. So you can just bake and apologize. And the British also love thank you notes. So you can just do that. Bake and say, I'm sorry, your feelings are hurt. Here's a cookie. <laughs> See, we're simple. I love that so much. No, and in terms of have you had, obviously, their kind of ongoing challenges, what about worst day on the job? Has anything gone drastically wrong? You know, like just before we came off the call, obviously, there's things like when supplier calls don't necessarily go to plan, all of that kind of thing. But have you got any standout moments where you've just thought, oh, God. There's like every day I have 15 minutes at least, which feel like the worst day on the job. I think this year, the worst day on the job was when we had an outbreak of the coronavirus within the company. And we had to go through a round of layoffs as well. So, you know, we had to have Zoom calls with people that had the coronavirus. So, you know, we had to lay off. And a lot of people lost parents as well to the virus and grandparents. So navigating the emotional pain that people were in, while also constantly having to make these really complicated business decisions, I definitely say was like the worst six months on the job. Mm, yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that. I just think, yeah, this year, it's been so unbelievably testing. When things, I mean, no one saw 2020 coming in the, in the way that it's unfolded. But given that you've just said it has been the most testing six months, what keeps you going on those days where it challenges you just generally, like, like you said, 15 minutes a day, but you know, those extended periods of time where it's just like it's mm. hard work. Like this year has felt like hard work. And I can't imagine having a team as big as days is on top of that and the kind of overheads and all of that kind of thing. What's keeping you going and yeah, how do you get through it? I actually just log into Instagram and I read our comments and user feedback. And that always just gives me like such a strong boost of energy and confidence and okay, what I'm doing, it matters. So suck it up and move on with it. Oh, I love that. How do you make sure you're looking after yourself throughout all of this? Uh, well, I've been notoriously very bad at looking after myself because I grew up with very little. Like we were always on the edge of poverty. So I have a really high threshold for pain and a really high threshold for discomfort, even on a physical level. So I have to actively work to be mindful of that. Like I only ever realize that I'm hungry when I'm about to fall to the ground and like blackout. I only ever realize that I have to go to the bathroom when I'm about to pee my pants. <laughs> so, that bad. so what I've started doing again, I see my therapist twice a week and that is really helpful. I also see a coach, which is also very helpful. I've started doing morning and evening rituals. There's things that I want to do with my life outside of work. And I have 45 minutes in the morning and 45 minutes in the evening to do those. And they are read, 
learn languages, learn how to code and do physical exercise. So I have my 45 minute morning ritual and my 45 minute evening ritual, which is my enforced self-care. I love it. It's enforced. You know what though, I really respect how you've broken it down like that, because sometimes you do need to make time for it, don't you? And be very strict with like, I will shut the laptop. What have you learned about yourself since all of this started? And and what has being your own boss taught you? Hmm. What have I learned about myself? I actually have not asked myself that question. I think that maybe one of the main things that I've learned about myself is that if I don't put How do I phrase this? If I don't put brakes on myself, I will just continue running. I don't have a natural, normal human being perception of speed. So I just think, okay, everything has to be done today. You should never leave the office with like anything left on your to-do list. Every time you leave the office, your inbox has to be zero. It's like these stupid rules that I've made up for myself in the years up to now where I've had to have a lot of discipline in order to build what I've built so far. And now they're unhelpful because I move faster than other people and it makes people feel left behind, which is a horrible thing to do to others. And it also means that I'm staying behind in my emotional and like social development because I'm constantly working and like never have time for friends. I never have time for my family. I never have time for like just normal 26-year-old interactions. So that's something that I've learned about myself that I need to pace myself. I need to like actively apply my discipline to pacing myself. Mm, but yeah I kind of want you to just from what you've said sounds like a good plan yeah in terms of friends and family there you know how have they reacted to the fact that you're running your business have you seen any relationships evolve for the better or worse as the business has grown as you become more successful the funding's come in etc etc and also being over here well my relationship with my mother has really surprisingly improved with me building day When I was growing up, I wasn't allowed to use tampons. And my mother always used to say that tampons are like the most disgusting, horrible thing and you should never use them. So I was actually afraid to tell her that, you know, I have this company and I only told her maybe like three months after I fundraised. (laughs) But she's been super supportive and very understanding. And I can actually call her when I'm having some kind of a business problem or a people problem. And and she listens, which is incredible because we weren't very close when I was growing up. And then with my friends' relationships, I have fewer friends now than I did before. And I have fewer acquaintances now than I did before. But I really have this super strong core group of people that I know I can always rely on. And that has given me so much emotional comfort because there's this like core group of friends that I have from my childhood, like people that I grew up with that you know now has very different lives all over the world. But we've all seen each other grow up and we've seen each other through just the worst circumstances, the worst pain. And it's like this enforced vulnerability and intimacy where if you've ugly cried in front of someone, there's like very very little else that, you know, this person can see from you. So so that's on the friends and acquaintances side. But it's hard Like people don't understand why you have to work every weekend and why you can't just hang out in the evenings and why you can't just go to Greece for a holiday. You know, that was before COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I really can relate to that. In terms of, like you said just there, that you call your mum when there's business advice, do you ever turn to your investors? You know, how's that relationship been? Yeah, it's been great. 
we're really grateful for the support of our investors and how hopeful they have been. I mostly call my mom to moan and be a child. <laughs> but yeah, we, we have really hopeful investors. That's amazing. And Valentina, I always round up with like going forward and stuff. What are the plans? Can you see yourself running day forever? And if so, you know, what do you want it to achieve in the coming 5, 10, 15 years time? I'd love to not do anything with my life apart from continue building the products for day. My ambition for it is that we really become a comprehensive platform for female health, really holistic platform for female health, where you can come and look after all of your female health needs, not, not just menstruation, not just vaginal health. You know, we just launched our vaginal probiotics as well. But everything that you need as a woman under one umbrella. Absolutely. I mean, that's a big goal, but I chatted to you for the past hour. I have no doubt uh, you will make that happen. But I always end on some statements. So I will start and I'd like you to finish the sentences, please. Number one, being my own boss means? More hard work than I thought. Oh my God, yeah. When it's not quite going to plan, my advice would be to? Stop, reevaluate, make a list of pros and cons. Yeah, if I could describe myself as a businesswoman, I'd say that I am. I'm very creative and scrappy. Mm. I feel like scrappy, that's something you should never lose, I think. You know, like as the structures grow when a business grows, it's so easy to lose that kind of grassroots energy, but scrappy's always good. If I could go back to day one of my business, I'd tell myself. I wish I could just tell myself about all of the mistakes that I've made so that I don't make these mistakes. But then you wouldn't be here. Yeah, I guess that's the perfectionist in me. (laughs) And very lastly, you've kind of already answered it, but I want my legacy to be that. There's one place where you can go and obtain the tools that you need to look after your health on your own terms. And that place is there. Love that so much. Thank you so much. Genuinely, it's been a pleasure and just been a really interesting one. Like, I've really loved that story. So thank you. I feel like I've interviewed so many founders now and sometimes you kind of see the same patterns crop up, but that was really lovely. So thank you. Thank you. You're very kind. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. If you have a minute to spare and enjoyed it, of course, it would mean so much to me if you could please rate the podcast below or leave a review if you fancy being extra kind, as apparently it helps to give the series a little boost and helps other female founders and aspiring business owners to find it. For now, though, enjoy the rest of your day and please do look out for next week's episode. (music) 